This is Spectator Radio, the Spectator's curated podcast collection. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. Boris Johnson's grip on the Conservative leadership race looks increasingly secure and his path to number 10 more and more certain. So we talk about who Boris really is and what kind of Prime Minister he might make. Plus, we discuss what might happen to the ISIS Beatles and ask, does the Lord's Prayer really need a rewrite? So first up, who is Boris Johnson? The man who looks almost certain to be our next Prime Minister seems to divide opinion like no one else in recent memory. Is he a charismatic man of the people or a phony demagogue? A progressive liberal Tory or a Brexit extremist covering for the far right? In this week's magazine, Toby Young argues that Boris's opponents are so blinded by their dislike for him that they've completely lost sight of who he actually is. He joins me to discuss, along with Stephen Bush, the political editor of The New Statesman. So Stephen, Toby accuses uh, a number of people on the left of suffering from Boris derangement syndrome. Have you recognised that in your contacts? Yeah, I, I think it definitely does exist, and not just, I would say, on my uh, contacts on the left. I mean, during his leadership campaign, Rory Stewart said that he did not think Boris Johnson could be trusted with the nuclear codes. Two problems with that. The first, of course, is that that is not how our deterrent works. The second is, I think, uh, even as I say this, someone who does not think he acquitted himself at all well as foreign secretary, the charge of what he actually did wrong is what he failed to do, not that he was someone who would somehow blunder into nuclear fire through activity. And I think... That is definitely something that people have. I think the open question, of course, is, is Boris derangement syndrome something which afflicts a large constituency in the country, right? Is it like Blair derangement syndrome in 1997, pastime of a couple of eccentric people on the right? Or is it like Blair derangement syndrome after 2004, when it was very much not a pastime of a minority of a country, but an increasingly popular opinion? I think the danger for the Conservative Party is that actually that syndrome is quite widespread nowadays. Uh, Toby, what do you think it is that particularly sparks this derangement syndrome in MPs and Boris Johnson's opponents? I, I was talking to, to one MP who was really venting about this MP was from a humbler background, shall we say, than Boris Johnson, and they felt that they wouldn't be able to get away with the sort of things that Boris does just because he's posh, was their argument. And that sort of chip on the shoulder seems to really set a lot of people off. Do you think it's that or do you think it's something else? I think it's a combination of things. I think it, it's partly a sort of resentful jealousy that journalists have for another journalist who just refuses to stay in his lane but has kind of ventured forth into politics and has done pretty well and looks like is going to go all the way. So I think there's a sort of general resentment about the fact that he ceased to be a spectator and entered the arena. Is it a resentment or a suspicion? Probably a combination of the two. I think there's, there's, as you say, there is this kind of class hostility. He can kind of uh, bring out the chippiness, you know, almost in people you would otherwise think were quite posh. I mean, a good example is Zoe Williams in The Guardian in 2008 wrote a kind of vituperative column saying, uh, amongst other things, once you've been to public school, then you are from postcode posh. And the odd thing about that is that Zoe herself went to Godolphin and Latimer, which is a £21,000 a year London day school that may have been a bit cheaper back then. So I think that's an element of it. I also think there's a kind of general puritanical dislike of his kind of cavalier, slightly amoral attitude. This business about him getting away with things that other people 
can't get away with. I think there's a sort of sense that we don't live in a just universe if someone who commits all these mistakes and sins in the way that Boris has sinned is somehow unscathed by it. Is it not also that he's a bit of a wind-up merchant? I mean, he does use language that if you sat back and thought about how people might react, you'd probably get the sense that they were going to be pretty angry about, for instance, saying that Muslim women wearing burqas looked like letterboxes and bank robbers, talking about people with watermelon smiles and so often. I mean, th- that's not somebody who wants to mollify, is it? So he is sort of seeking a bit of derangement in, well, in the reaction to him. Clearly, one of the explanations for the prevalence of Boris derangement syndrome is that there's plenty of material to work with. Um, and that's his fault, isn't it? Because he wrote it. <laughs> but I'm not sure that that necessarily hurts him, though. He's constantly being hit by offence archaeologists who've dug up uh, various supposedly offensive things he said over his 35-year career as a journalist. I mean, that was you saw that on Channel 4 News last week when they interviewed the two lesbians that were beaten up on the London bus and asked, asked them whether they thought Boris was fit to run the country, but before that, carefully explained to them that Boris was a, quote, homophobe and misogynist. And I think there is this kind of uh, feeling on the part of the metropolitan elite, particularly in Romania, that he is uh, not a pound shop Trump, but kind of German street Trump, that we are in the midst of a culture war and Boris is on the wrong side. But the irony is that on all the big culture war issues, gay rights, abortion, immigration, Boris is actually on the same side as the metropolitan elite. So that doesn't really play. And I think the fact that that doesn't play and doesn't really land helps Boris because it means that they're not actually landing blows where they might be. Stephen, do you think that actually this is going to help or hinder Boris's premiership if he does indeed become prime minister? Because it may well be that people are so deranged by him that he's able to continue to get away with a lot more than he otherwise would because they're so busy getting worked up rather than noticing what he's actually doing. I I think one of the reasons why I think it will be quite a short premiership, right, is ultimately... We shouldn't be because I don't actually think that the the off color language is the problem, right? He the off color language is something which was known about him when he won in 2012, a year when Labour candidates were being were, were being victorious all over the country, and he he managed to survive uh, in 2012. But that was because he was seen as someone who told it like it was, and who people, including lots of people in London who have now memory hold that they felt this way, quite liked him. The the issue is Brexit, right? That is the big problem for both political parties and it has polarised the electorate and it makes it very hard for them to win majorities. And the Conservative Party is now almost certainly going to have, as its candidate in an election that it will almost certainly have to have before the end of this year, a man who is the reverse of catnip for half of the electorate. That probably simplifies Labour's task in terms of how it holds on to its remainers and it severely complicates the Conservative path to a majority, because we saw in 2017 that the problem uh, that we we now have as a country is not enough people are willing to vote on Remain Leave lines, or too many people are willing to vote on Remain Leave lines. And I think his big problem is not, you know, and he irritates a couple uh, couple of people, but that a large chunk of Remainers, including Remainers who voted for him, now loathe him uh, as a result. And what about the Conservative Party? It obviously has now backed... Boris to the hilt to get into the final two, its MPs have. But there are a lot of MPs who are still very angrily anyone but Boris. Is it going to be more riven by splits if he becomes Prime Minister? Well, there was a bit of speculation about who the two Conservative MPs 
were that spoilt their ballot papers in the penultimate ballot. And the suspicion is that they're people who couldn't bring themselves to vote for any of the candidates and won't serve under Boris. And there's some speculation that Rory Stewart, he sort of already said, well, he sort of flip-flopped on it, but he sort of said that he wouldn't be in a, a Boris cabinet. It's hard to know whether there would be any defections uh, in the event of Boris becoming leader. People have said they would in the past, but, you know, the Conservative Party tends to be quite loyal. And to Stephen's point, I think that you're sort of assuming that there will be a general election before we've exited. I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I don't think he's likely to get many concessions, if any, out of Europe. But I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that if he does try and take us out without a deal, that he would lose a confidence vote. I don't think it's particularly attractive for other parties, even some of the change UK independents to have a general election right now before this issue's been resolved. So I think it's perfectly possible that we won't have a general election until we've left, in which case all these other issues come into play. Does Boris derangement syndrome possibly apply to the EU as well, Stephen? No, although there are lots of European diplomats who dislike Boris Johnson, who blame him for, you know, who believe that the story of the referendum was that he lied and as a result Brexit happened. The more important an almost unique problem with these negotiations, right, is that for obvious reasons, the EU needs to prove that you cannot get a better deal outside. And the Brexit project obviously relies on you being able to get a better deal outside. Now, almost all trade negotiations are about mutually shared goals. Now, the weird thing is this is a trade negotiation in which there is, yes, the mutually shared goal of a trade negotiation, but in which one side needs to definitively prove it has won and the other side needs to prove it has definitively won and it is essentially impossible I think to reconcile those two strategic asks regardless of who the individual people on either side of the EU UK negotiating teams are. Finally Toby what do you expect the membership round of this conservative leadership contest to look like? Well, all the polling of Conservative members suggests that Boris will win by a pretty wide margin, whoever he's up against. But, you know, things can go wrong. The favourite often doesn't win, as many people have said. I think if it is Michael Gove, I think Michael Gove will put up a better fist of opposing Boris than lots of people expect. I don't I don't expect the kind of blue-on-blue psychodrama that many people are fearful of, if that does end up being the final two. Uh, I think it'll be a proper quite grown-up debate, maybe not on the BBC again because of the bruising experience they had uh, during the BBC debate earlier this week. But I think there will be a proper debate. And I think, you know, Boris, I think, has said different things to different people about exactly what his Brexit plan is going to be and what the circumstances are in which he'd accept a deal and so forth. So he's got these different constituencies with different expectations. And if, if Michael can kind of play on that, I think that could damage Boris a little bit. So I don't think it's an absolute foregone conclusion, but I do think it's overwhelmingly likely that Boris Stephen. will win. Stephen? Yeah, I think it's exactly like that. I, you know, it feels a bit like you know, a, a, a football cup final in which you know you have a, a good team versus, say, Spurs. Now, obviously, they're in the final. They've got a chance. Probably not a very good chance, but certainly a chance. And I think the fact that it will not be as easy for uh, Boris Johnson, if it is Michael Gove, to portray it as Remain v. Leave, makes it harder for him. However, for exactly that reason, I would be astonished, even though I don't believe there has been tactical voting thus far, if Boris Johnson's team don't decide to have at least some tactical voting for this final round. Thank you, Toby and Stephen. Next up, does anyone remember the Beatles? No, not your dad's favourite band but the group of the four young British men who rose to infamy after travelling to Syria to fight for the Islamic State. 
Paul Wood writes in this week's magazine that, in spite of their amusing nickname, these four men are responsible for some of the worst excesses of ISIS violence. He says that the scale of their crimes hasn't been heard publicly and they should be brought to trial in the UK to account for them. He joins us down the line from Beirut alongside Tom Wilson, Senior Research Fellow at Policy Exchange and an expert in the study of extremist groups and counter-terrorism strategy to discuss. So, Paul, just remind us who the ISIS Beatles are. Yeah, the ISIS Beatles as opposed to the Beatles group. And let's not forget that Yoko Ono is deeply distressed by this association. But the ISIS Beatles were four Britons who uh, either kidnapped or were given hostages to look after when ISIS was in power. A piece I wrote for the magazine this week focuses on two of them, Ringo and George, as they were called by the hostages, al-Shafi al-Sheikh and Alexander Cotte, their real names, who'd been arrested by the Kurds, arrested about 18 months ago, but are now finally admitting membership of the Beatles. And having spoken to quite a lot of the former hostages who got out, the Europeans, it was a litany of abuse, torture, and killings by the Beatles. Uh, Cotte and El Sheikh deny any part in the killings, but the significant advance that the families had uh, with their interview on CNN, which is what the piece was about, was them finally admitting, yes, we were part of the group, the ISIS hostage takers known as the Beatles. And what kind of justice are they likely to face? Well, one possibility is that the Americans transfer them to Baghdad. They're now in Kurdish custody. That's happened to other people accused of ISIS membership. And it's been pretty swift justice, literally a 10-minute hearing and then death by hanging. The drawback in that is that there are still many, many questions about exactly what the Beatles did and why. Why they directed such seemingly personalised fury at the Western hostages, especially the British hostages and the Americans. Why, having been born in some cases or certainly brought up in London, they had an especial hatred for Britain. Um, These are things which the families want to know, but are of a wider interest to the publics in America and Britain. They will not be brought back to Britain, whatever happens. They've been stripped of their citizenship and Britain has let it be known to the United States that uh, now that that's happened, it really doesn't matter to Britain that the US has the death penalty. Britain has no more obligation to defend them, having stripped them of their citizenship. So the American families have had a long campaign to see these uh, these people. There were three of them left, of course, uh, Jihadi John having been killed by an American drone strike, but to see them face justice in the United States. And I think we are moving in that direction. Um, There was a court case in Britain in January in which uh, a last-ditch attempt by El Shafi El Sheikh's mother uh, to stop this was turned down by the High Court. Probably has to go to the Supreme Court, but I think the American families do now expect to see the Beatles in a court, probably in Washington, D.C. or Virginia. And do you disagree with Britain stripping them of their of their citizenship? No, not at all. I mean, the, um, there was a subheadline in the in the magazine which didn't exactly reflect what I was saying. I simply noted as a fact that Britain had stripped them of their citizenship. My argument and my wish is to see a trial somewhere, and not simply to have some something which is not really a proper examination of the evidence in Baghdad, where the the judges clearly made the decision in advance of any appearance by the defendant. Their defendants routinely don't get proper legal representation. Uh, Accused ISIS members meet their lawyer once they turn up at court. Ten minutes later, they've been sentenced to death. That isn't due process. Everybody deserves due process, wherever that might be. I'm agnostic as to whether that's in Britain or the United States. It's, I think, almost certainly going to be in the United States now. 
And I think the good thing about that is that there are 600 witness statements collected by the British police or through British intelligence. That will now be made available to the court. Perhaps there will be something of the underlying American and British intelligence. We will get, I hope, survivors, people who are in um, the custody of the Beatles coming forward and testifying and perhaps even get testimony from the Beatles themselves so we get a full accounting of exactly what happened. So Tom, how unusual are their cases? Are there many other individuals like these members of the Beatles? I think because of their prominence and the fact that they were in this particular cell which through Mohammed and Wazi got so much publicity it does make it a fairly unique case. Of course we've also seen people like Shamima Begum whose cases became known to the public but there are so many other people in terms of the 300 people who are still at large in the Middle East, something like 400 who have returned to the UK and most of those of course haven't faced court and haven't been convicted, um, where the public just doesn't know who they are and we, we don't know a great deal about them. I think that this whole phenomenon, and it's easy to sort of try and make judgments about what to do about foreign fighters based on these high profile cases, be it the Bethnal Green schoolgirls or or the Beatles, but I do think we have to address this much wider problem of the problem of returnees and whether or not British law and our ability to gather evidence on the foreign battlefield is sufficient for convicting those who seek to return to the UK. There have been some new laws passed about travelling to a conflict zone where ISIS is active, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yes, in the Counterterrorism and Border Security Act, which came in at the beginning of this year, there's a law that allows the Home Secretary to designate a particular territory illegal to enter or remain in. And that would obviously be great for helping with cases like that, in the future, but it doesn't solve what to do with these people. You can't retroactively apply this law. But I do think, even in that case, that a law like that, a bit like the laws that we have on joining a prescribed terrorist organization, are still insufficient. Something like membership of a prescribed organization carries a 10 year sentence, and it's very difficult to prove. I think that we need something more like a treason law that would carry a life sentence and that would really encapsulate that there is a, a moral issue of betraying your country and joining with its enemies to signal to the British public that we take justice in these cases incredibly seriously. Yeah, just on that point, slaveholding was quite widespread in ISIS-controlled territory. There were slave markets. Yazidi women by the thousand were violated. And in the same way that British paedophiles, if caught, can expect to be prosecuted for, say, crimes they committed in Thailand, it would be, I think, uh, an interesting exercise uh, for the British authorities to try to gather what information they can on whether any of the returning ISIS fighters, the people, the 400 that have come back, uh, had any involvement in the ISIS culture of slaveholding, slave selling and slave owning. And Tom, how much of a risk do these returnees pose to UK national securities. Some of them, it's very difficult to prove that they committed any existing crimes. It might be, you know, that they were in Aleppo, but that doesn't necessarily say that they were up to anything that under the law that they were travelling out under, that, that they've committed any offences. So are most of them likely just to sort of reassimilate into British society? Or is there a real worry from the government that we've got a, a terrorist threat back on British soil? 
Well, I think that assessing the degree to which somebody poses a risk is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And of course, we've seen it go wrong in the cases of some of the people who are responsible for the attacks in, in 2017 in this country. Um, of the 400 who have returned from Islamic State to the UK, we know that about 40 have been prosecuted. So for the rest, we have to assume either that the Crown Prosecution Service decided there wasn't a public interest in prosecuting them or that there wasn't the evidence. If you're not going to be able to convict people and send them to prison, then to some degree you've got to monitor them. Things like control orders are incredibly expensive. And not only is it a question of money, but if you reallocate the relatively small number of people who we've got who are trained in high-level monitoring to monitoring all these additional people coming into the country, that means you're taking their eyes and ears away from other threats. So you're, you're increasing your level of risk. Equally, if you do manage to put them in prison, even for quite a long time, you then obviously have a concern about are they going to radicalise others in prison. We have these separation centres that are being trialled now in two prisons, also very expensive, and we don't yet know how successful they're going to be at, for instance, de-radicalising people. So it's a huge headache. And Paul, you mentioned that a trial would allow us to understand better what it was that made these members of the Beatles hate Britain so much and have such a particular hatred towards the British and American hostages. Do, what do we know so far about their lives and about what might have led them to going out and committing these crimes? Well, the jihadis generally fell into two groups. People had been criminals, drug dealers, uh, gang members, car thieves, and who suddenly got religion, however sincere or insincere that might be. And the kind of university educated, sometimes quite technocratic figures like Jihadi John, who everything seemed to be going quite well for them in British society, but there was some triggering event or maybe some ideological conversion and they became true believers. They're, I call them the gangsters and the true believers. They fell into those two groups and Cotty, for instance, was a drug dealer, but I don't think there was any distinction drawn by the former hostages as to their treatment. It was pretty sadistic by both groups. Both groups seemed to see them as a, as a representative of wrongs that had been done to them in Britain and wrongs that were being done by Britain in the United States in the Middle East. And it was a sort of personalised hatred. Uh, they really relished uh, the torture that they inflicted on these hostages. Tom, some people will say that these men are mentally ill. Is that at all relevant? I mean, in terms of radicalisation, there is an increased focus on mental health and the police are trying to sort of set up these mental health hubs essentially to try and separate those who are genuine mental health issues and those are people who are ideological adherents. I think that the ideological element continues to be one of the most important and if we think that we've had close to 900 individuals who took up the call to go and join Islamic State and we have many others who were considering it or who attempted it and failed, I think we have a real problem in this country of trying to understand why it is. I mean, as Paul talked about, people who really, really hate this country. How is it that we have managed to foster so many people in our midst who not only don't feel loyal to this country, but actively hate it and want to join with its enemies? And that goes back to why I was talking about something like a treason law, where we sort of reassert that we take being loyal to our country incredibly seriously, and we treat that seriously. But we do need to think more generally about how it is that we... I mean, patriotism is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but how it is that we manage to foster an identity of love rather than hatred for Britain. Thank you, Paul and Tom. And finally, does the Lord's Prayer need an update? Pope Francis caused controversy recently by appointing a revised translation of Christianity's most beloved prayer. 
He says it's a minor change that better reflects the church's view of God. But critics say it's yet another infraction against tradition by a pope who doesn't know his place. Melanie McDonough writes in The Spectator this week that the change is not only theologically wrong, but a threat to one of Christianity's most important and unifying cultural artefacts. She joins me alongside Marcus Walker, rector of Great St Bartholomew's Church in London and former deputy director of the Anglican Communion's Embassy to the Vatican to discuss. So, Melanie, for the less saintly of our listeners, can you explain what the fuss about the Lord's Prayer is? Right. The Italian bishops have followed the French and Spanish ones in authorising a translation of the Lord's Prayer, which is completely different from the one that we're used to in English. That is to say, instead of saying, lead us not into temptation, it says, more or less, do not abandon us to temptation. And so that's in accord with the Pope's idea of um, how God should behave. That is to say, that he should be like a loving father who doesn't expose us to temptation. Is this an accurate translation? No, it's not. It doesn't follow the literal meaning of the Greek. The Vulgate says, which is what the translation is made from, so we're translating from the Greek via St Jerome and the Vulgate. So the Greek uses a verb, the the root of which is something uh, like as ferro, which means to bring or carry in. So at a stretch that can be made to translate as lead. And the noun there, pyrasmus, is normally translated as to try or to attempt or a trial or an attempt. And there's one meaning that's given in Herodotus uh, to the effect of it being a temptation by a god. So again, temptation might not be a, a very common rendering of, of the noun, but it's not stretching it beyond what it'll bear. Marcus, has your church adopted the new version? No, our church hasn't. I mean, in fact, the Catholic Church in England and Wales hasn't either. But I suppose the the Church of England has monkeyed around with the Lord's Prayer in its own way at different times. However, it hasn't actually gone so far as to change the meaning. It only simplified the language from trespasses to sins and so on. That's right. Our Father who are in heaven. That's right. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't personally endorse that change, but it has has done that. This manages to alter the meaning of the Lord's Prayer as well, which is pretty profoundly problematic. And why is it problematic? Melanie's explained that it's not a direct translation, but surely it fits in better with the Christian understanding of what God does, which is that he doesn't actually force us to sin. I think the first thing as Christians that we shouldn't do is to try and act as God's spin doctor. And in fact, to start saying, no, no, what God really meant to say, what Jesus really meant to say was this, both Matthew and Luke come up with the same words. Now, their, their versions of the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels are different, are quite substantially different. Luke's is much more earthy, much shorter, possibly much more, much closer to the Aramaic. Matthew's is much more rhythmical, possibly much more liturgical. Which is the one that's commonly used? Matthew's is the one that's commonly used. What's interesting is that both of them, despite their differences, have the same words for this. Do not lead us, do not bring us, do not carry us into temptation. There's no question but that that seems to be what Jesus was saying. This isn't the first, perhaps, a misinterpretation or over-interpretation of biblical scriptures. There's often a disagreement about the book of Job, isn't there, about whether God bringing these various troubles upon Job is really biblical. Yes, I mean, the, the, the question of the book of Job is very interesting. What's the book doing? It's not attempting to be a history. It, it is. I mean, this is, in fact, a very good example of what's going on. You, take, you don't rewrite 
the book just because it's problematic. In fact, you look at the book and you say, what's this actually saying? Oh, it appears to be a piece of wisdom literature. It appears to be almost a novel attempting to tease out the questions of pain, the, tempt- the questions of suffering, the questions of temptation. The problem is when we say, ah, oh, this is problematic, let's exclude it. Melanie, what effect has it had on on you and other worshippers? Just irritation, really. To do justice to the Pope, it's not the first time this problem's been raised. Tertullian raised it, and St Augustine raised it. And indeed, St Augustine says that some people translate the Lord's Prayer in this way, rather similar to the Pope. And there are some scholars who say that the verb relates to something called a Semitic causative, which might bear some relation to the underlying Aramaic. But frankly, that's stretching it a bit. It seems to me that this is exactly as we've said that the Pope is trying to put kind of Christ's words within the context of his own concept of what Christ should have said. There are indeed passages in scripture where in uh, sort of Corinthians for instance where we're told that God won't actually subject us to more temptation than we can bear and will give us a way out of it and that's much more in keeping with the Pope's idea of what Christ should have said but I entirely agree that what we should do in these circumstances uh, is give the plain meaning of scripture and then try and parse it afterwards, not try and mistranslate it in order to parse it kind of through the translation. Marcus, how much explaining do you have to do of of what God really means within the context of the whole book? You have to do that every week in the sermon, really. I mean, that's what the sermon's about. It's taking the texts and explaining what they mean, explaining what the context was, explaining what it means today. One of the things about the Lord's Prayer, though, is it isn't just a theological question. It's also a deep, cultural and personal issue because the lord's prayer is probably the first prayer that most people learn it goes deep into the soul goes deep into the psyche it's possibly the last thing that somebody will hear i remember the first time i ever gave last rites to somebody and i'd been told that she would have you'd be capable of no response whatsoever and i went through the process until i got to the lord's prayer and i was holding her hand and she started squeezing Mm. my hand somewhere deep inside her she heard the words of the Lord's Prayer that she recognised and she responded. Mm. Um, I've seen the devastation of the change of the Lord's Prayer in the Church of England. I remember one time going to York Minster with a friend who was considering conversion to Roman Catholicism and she came with me to York Minster saying, I want to go back to this church that I know so well. And the Lord's Prayer was new and she found she didn't know the words. And she ended up in tears, and she ended up saying, actually, this is the church telling me I'm no longer a member. And I think we we tear apart this prayer in particular that binds so many people together at our peril. So, Melanie, what does it say about where the Catholic Church is at the moment? Oh, dear God, it's all over the place. Um, In this instance, the initiative of the bishops' conferences of Italy and Spain, and it is a decision of each uh, bishops' conference, but in fact, they are, as I say, following the Pope's lead in this. The bishops of England and Wales, thank God, haven't fiddled with it. And I think that's for exactly the reasons that Marcus cites, that you don't actually want to pull the rug from under people and take away the one thing that they probably do know. Uh, The German bishops didn't do it, interestingly, not just for um, reasons to do with style and translation, but also ecumenical reasons, because the Lord's Prayer is the one thing that they and the Lutherans can say together, uh, now that they no longer say it in Latin. Actually, if we stuck to the Latin, we wouldn't have a problem. Nobody's tried to write, rewrite that yet. I think I would be in tears if I had to stick to the Latin. But there we go. <laughs> Marcus, finally, Melanie poses at the, the start of her piece the question, is the Pope Catholic? What do you think? 
I'm not really sure that it's appropriate for the for a priest in the Church of England to assess the Catholicism of the Pope, except to say that he's the person who has clearly transformed the way in which so many people view uh, Roman Catholicism, both within the Church and without. He's stirred up a lot of love for the Church within the Church amongst a lot of people. He's also stirred up a lot of controversy and brought a, and stirred up a lot of hostility within the Church to him and some of the changes that he's made. I'm afraid I'm going to be a bit of a coward here and say, you know, it's far too early to tell. Yeah. Thanks, Melanie and Marcus. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get our podcasts from. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up this week's issue of The Spectator to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, plus more from Max Hastings, Laurie Graham and Matthew Paris. And don't forget to take advantage of our offer, 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, plus a £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Mm -hmm.